If you're listening to this podcast, it means you're ready, no more than ready, to have a major breakthrough in your business. You're hungry for change and you're hungry for growth. But do you know where to start? Or if you've already started but are feeling stuck, you need some help, someone to talk to about your business plan and how you can accelerate growth. That's why Tony Robbins is offering a free one-to-one business strategy session from one of his top business coaches, a $600 value, completely free, no strings attached. That's right. If you're listening right now, you can go to TonyRobbins.com slash CEO to sign up for your free session and get started on your own path to massive success. Today, over 35 million people subscribe to Sirius XM Radio, but it was only 30 years ago that the very concept of delivering high-quality radio service to listeners via satellites was almost inconceivable. And yet, it did happen. In the early 90s, the FCC established frequencies and licensing rules for the first-ever satellite digital audio radio service. And it was all due to the persistence of one woman, Martine Rothblatt. The company that she started from nothing is now a $6 billion business, and with its recent acquisition of Pandora, is set to capture even more market share in the fast-growing digital audio space. Even if this, the founding of Sirius, was all she had done, it would still be quite an accomplishment, a level of success that most people only dream of achieving. But Martine didn't stop there. She pivoted her entire career as an engineer and shifted her attention to biotechnology creating United Therapeutics in 1996 after finding out her daughter had pulmonary hypertension, a rare, life-threatening disease. Today, United Therapeutics sells five FDA-approved pills for pulmonary hypertension and is experimenting with pig cloning and genetic modification to create organ transplants the body doesn't reject. When Martine found out that 80% of donated lungs end up unusable, she figured out a technique to manufacture them in unlimited quantities and overcome the severe shortage of donor organs. She even went on to invent the first electric helicopter to deliver them in a way that's environmentally friendly. Martine was the top-earning CEO in the biopharmaceutical industry in 2018, earning a compensation package of more than $37 million. But she's not just a pioneer in business. She underwent gender reassignment surgery decades ago and has been a powerful advocate for transgender rights ever since. Earlier this year, at Business Mastery, Tony had the privilege of speaking with Martine, and he was completely blown away by their conversation. Listen closely, because in this episode, Martine shares how she has built her entire career on achieving the seemingly impossible, and she also reveals her own process for turning visionary ideas into technology that we can use every day. Thanks for taking the time. I know how crazy busy you are, all of you are. So take the time to help these uh, entrepreneurs here. It's really, really beautiful of you. You, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with you. You're the Renaissance woman. I mean, it's amazing what you've done. Tell us if you would, uh, you went to UCLA. Um, I read Woo! that you were engineers, some UCLA members out there. You studied engineering. I studied law, as I understand. You had an MBA. You did all the above. And then somehow you came up with this idea of using these satellites. Will you tell us the genesis of that and how you made that shift? Sure, Tony. Um, I love space and satellite technology. I grew up seeing the space shuttle being launched. I thought it was completely awesome that we could leave the planet and begin to spread humanity through the solar system and ultimately beyond. I grew up reading science fiction like Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein, 
And I just felt that the Earth is a tiny part of this beautiful galaxy, and it's the purpose of uh, us humans to spread our civilization, our beauty, our happiness throughout the cosmos. So I thought, like, well, what can I? How's that for a mission? Yeah, that's it. You know, (laughs) pretty awesome. Yeah. So I thought, like, well, what can I practically do right now with that? And I knew that there were rockets that one could buy, and you could put satellites on the rocket. And I knew satellites could do lots of cool things: could track vehicles driving around, could take uh, photographs of crops and estimate uh, weather conditions. So I began to think, well, why couldn't we use satellites to broadcast radio so that people driving long distances wouldn't have to keep tuning to a different channel of the radio and that you could, in fact, uh, have instead of just 10 or 20 channels in a city, you could have hundreds of channels and every niche of radio, every genre could be appreciated. So I did all the calculations I put At this, what age did this happen with you? Did you get this insight? Uh, this was in my 30s. In your 30s? Yeah. Okay, got it. Got so it. I put together all these calculations. I submitted them to the Federal Communications Commission, and uh, ultimately they approved it. I went to Wall Street. I raised the money to uh, launch the system, and it's been one of the greatest joys of my life to be able to meet uh, hundreds and hundreds of people from all walks of life, all corners of the country, who have said that SiriusXM helps them get through each and every day of their life. And tell me, give her a hand for that. It's amazing. How, tell us some of the stages in that growth. So you come up with that. It's a large idea, to say the least. And you go, you sell the idea. But how did you get your initial funding? And, and were there some tough times in the beginning? Or were you able to just really take off with the right personalities and so forth? You know, Tony, what really kept me going was the the science and the technology. I did the math, and I knew that the system would work. But instead, when you try to change something radical like this, it seems like everybody tells you, no, it won't work. Right. But, um, I mean, a million people can tell you that 2 plus 2 is not 4, but you're not going to believe them. You know 2 plus 2 is 4. So I did the what were, are called in engineering the link budgets, the calculations to show it would work. And when people would say, uh, no, it's going to get blocked by trees, it's going to get blocked by wires, it's too far, you can't have an antenna on a car pointing to the satellite, I said, well, let me do a demonstration for you. So I built an antenna on top of the USA Today Gannett building across from Washington, D.C. It's the tallest building in the Washington, D.C. area. And I made the power of that antenna equal to what a satellite would broadcast. And then I equipped a car with a flat antenna that was right inside the, um, t- the roof of the car. I brought all the FCC people into the car, and I drove around. I drove through Rock Creek Park. If any of you know Washington, D.C., it's full of trees. And the signal worked perfectly. So then they couldn't say it wouldn't work. Then I went to Wall Street, and they said, okay, it works, but nobody's going to listen to this. Why should somebody pay for radio when you could get it for free? I said, well, you pay for TV. And they said, well, that's different. And I said, no, it's not. But I found some investors willing to take a a bet on this, especially when I came up with a new model. I said, instead of people always being interrupted by commercials, they could just pay a monthly subscription fee and get 100 different channels with no commercials. 
People complained to me that on the very first day we launched the satellite, there would be nobody to subscribe to it. So I had to raise enough money to carry us through a few years. But there were tough times, and we were running a cash flow negative. How much did you raise in the beginning, if I may ask? Um, over $2 billion. Wow. That's... And I will I'll tell you publicly, and I've said this before, and it's, it's beautiful because uh, Howard Stern has said to me, Martin, you gave me my life. This is my dream. You've made all of this possible. And I've said back to him, I said, no, Howard, you saved the butt of SiriusXM because never do we get more subscribers and more loyal people willing to pay for SiriusXM than after Howard came on board. Wow. That's amazing. And what made you believe Howard would be such a pull at that stage? You were a New Yorker? He, he was it? already very popular. Howard was uh, networked in 10 different cities through Infinity Radio. But there were rules at the um, government level that you could not own more than 10 radio stations. So when I went to the FCC and I said, I want to bring content like classical music, like Howard Stern, like deep track uh, vinyl and whatnot, I want to bring this to every single city in America. Then what happened is the National Association of Broadcasters said that's illegal. Why should you be able to own a radio station, in fact, 100 radio stations, in every town and city and village and nook and cranny of America, and we, ABC Radio and CBS Radio, we can only own 10. That's not fair. And I said, you know, technology changes, and you have to, why should people living in smaller towns be deprived of the content that people get in New York City and Washington, D.C.? Fortunately, the FCC agreed with me, and even though people said what I was doing was unconstitutional and was going to, you know, destroy democracy in America, <laughs> all that bull, you know, <laughs> fell away. And uh, what I said to the FCC is truth and technology will always triumph over bullshit and bureaucracy. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Where, where does this certainty come inside? I can see, I can understand the engineering side because you knew it. It was the facts. You figured it out. But this belief that I can go raise billions of dollars, this belief that I can change the rules completely, where does it come from in your life? Are you born with that? Was there a stage in your life where you started to develop that certainty and start to have more trust in yourself? Or where does it come from? Yeah, you know, trust is a, uh, is a um, something of a becoming. And I don't think it's realistic to think you come from a position of no trust to complete trust in yourself. And um, I look at, I always say one of the adages at my company is that people who criticize you and challenge you are your best friends. Because those are the ones that are pushing you to think through things that you hadn't thought through. So when I started with satellite communications and designing the Sirius satellite, it was in fact too big to fit into a rocket. So the people that told me this was impossible were not entirely incorrect. To make a satellite so powerful that you could blast 100 channels into a flat antenna, um, there were no rockets at the time large enough to carry that. So I looked around the world. I talked to the French company, Ariane Spas, and they were just in the process of developing a much larger rocket. So I said, well, this is a perfect use for that larger rocket. 
And they said, yeah, that, that is. And one thing leads to another, Tony. It's the same thing with the current company I have, United Therapeutics. When I said I have a medicine that can stop the disease that's ravaging my daughter's life, people said, you don't know anything about medicine. You're a satellite engineer. If, if, if it existed, doctors and scientists would have invented it. I wasn't sure, but I kept doing the research. And the more I learned, the more certain I got. So I think confidence is something that you have to build up bit by bit. Yes. Tell, let's, I want to come back to serious, but you've opened the door. Talk about your daughter, Genesis, and tell us a little about what happened with her and how did you go from an engineer into biotech and build another billion-dollar company? Yeah, so I'm, I'm running Sirius, and our, we're skiing in Colorado, and our youngest daughter, suddenly her lips turned all blue. She has no energy. Uh, we went home. Uh, we went to doctor after doctor. Nobody could say what was wrong. Finally, she couldn't walk up the steps to the house. And we end up at Children's National Medical Center, the biggest children's hospital, with the head of cardiology. And she has said they, they said that she has a one out of every million person disease, and she's going to die in, in three to five years. Um, so... I, I just said, like, you know, no, that, that can't happen. And uh, they said, I said, there must be companies working on a cure. No, this is too rare of a disease. No one's going to make a cure. There must be some other medicine that could be repurposed to this. No, this is a disease that only affects the blood vessels between the heart and the lung. And there's no way to just affect those little set of blood vessels and not affect all the other blood vessels in your body. So, Tony, I, I had no confidence I could do, I could do anything in, in this area. But you had to. I had to save my daughter. Yeah. I had to save my daughter no matter what. I would have just punched my fist through, you know, the strongest concrete wall to save her. So I just sat there. And, as I said before, I, I kept learning and learning and talking to doctors. And whenever they said something couldn't be done, I figured a way around that. And one of my favorite sayings is like, it takes 99 no's to get a yes. So people could tell me no 99 times, and I appreciate every additional one of those no's because that's going to get me closer to my yes. And finally, I was able to find in the, in the uh, library at this hospital an obscure publication of a, of a drug that was being developed for a completely different disease, but they uh, noticed that it reduced the blood pressure just between the heart and the lungs. Wow. And they said, this is of no use to heart failure, but I said, whoa, that's like exactly what I need. So I made a beeline to that company, uh, GlaxoSmithKline. I said to them, um, I will pay you guys to develop this drug um, because by that time, Sirius had gone public. I had resources. They said, no, uh, we don't need your money. We're a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company. We're very sorry about your daughter, but we don't develop drugs for orphan indications. I said, okay, sell it to me. I'll do it. Uh, that wouldn't be ethical. You're a satellite engineer. You don't know anything about medicine. Uh, we, we might be sued. So I had to keep, you know, knocking on their door when they told me I didn't know anything about medicine. I hired some medical doctors. Uh, when they told me they would only um, license it to me, I got lawyers to come up with the licensing. Long story short, I got that medicine out of there. By the way, when I got it out of there... How about that, ladies yeah. and gentlemen? I will tell you, 
How long? I ran. I ran because I felt like I was jacking the beanstalk, and I had just gotten the golden hand, and, <laughs> and I was running out of there before they changed their mind. <laughs> How long did this process take from the time you heard about Genesis, this real problems, to the time you were able to find the solution? 18 months. 18 Is months. that incredible? That, give her a hand. That's unbelievable. Talk about a mother's love lifting up a Volkswagen. <laughs> you lift up an industry. Tell us what's come out of that. Your, it's happened to your daughter. Well, most Tell important, us. most important of all, is that Genesis is alive and well. And she was supposed to live how long? And how old has it been since then? So it's been a journey. United Therapeutics was formed in 2000, so we're coming close to like 20 years. She's been a, a hero throughout this whole effort. After she finished college. But just imagine, Tony, everybody through your whole life since you're a little kid is telling you, you know, you're going to die, you have a deadly disease, a fatal disease, blah, blah, blah. She um, surmounts all of that and then says, what I want to do with my life is I want to work in this company, Martine, that you started to save my life and help everybody else with this indication. Wow. It's beautiful. Beautiful. So she, she inspires me each and every day um, here today to, to support me. So what has happened is that our medicines, it turns out, by the way, that when Genesis was diagnosed, there were 2,000 people in the whole U.S. with this disease because almost everybody died within five years. So people are constantly born with it, and then they died. So it only got to be 2,000 people was the prevalence. Today... Thanks to our medicines, the United States are over 40,000 people living. Wow, that's awesome. Oh, give it up, ladies and gentlemen. So what, what has happened is that as we've been successful, it's like this Nelson Mandela quote, it's okay to shine. It's yeah. okay to be full of pride in what you've accomplished because when you do that, you inspire everybody else yeah. to come and, and, and be small. the best of themselves. That's why I love you so much, Tony, and I love everything about the, the, the Tony Robbins activity because you let all of us shine and be the best people that we can be. <laughs> thank you, you do that automatically thank yourself. You. <laughs> Beautiful, thank you. So people began calling, emailing, writing. I have an a aunt, an uncle, a cousin, a brother or sister with a rare disease. And I was scared um, because, you know, I didn't even really know what I was doing with Genesis. Yes. I was just going one step at a time. And I still had uh, never taken a biology course since high school. So it was, it was scary. But bit by bit, we began working on more and more rare diseases. And I per perhaps the most astonishing one was five years ago when we developed a, a, a drug that cures half of all the instances, not 100%, but at least half of a terrible childhood uh, rare cancer called neuroblastoma. Yes. So before we got this approved by the FDA five years ago, and before we got it approved, it's a horrible disease and a horrible death, and 100% of the kids with this would die, including um, like a brother of one of our board of directors, many other people. Today, half the people with this, this disease that take our medicine, five years after they've taken it, wow. they have no disease at all. It never goes, mm. comes back. Wow. They go on and they live their whole life happily ever That's after. That's incredible. So the company has taken on other rare diseases now as well. And tell us about the company. What has it grown to? Yeah, it's grown quite a bit, uh, Tony. We've um, this, this drug, which, by the way, 
I would have thought that after I, I did Sirius, everybody would say, okay, Martine, you know, you know how to run a business. Uh, we'll invest, you know, whatever you need for United Therapeutics. It turns out in the beginning, all the investment had to come from me because Wall Street wow. said, well, nobody's going to buy this medicine. I mean, there's 2,000 people. If they pay, you know, like $1,000 a year, that's, that's not going to cover all of your costs. Yeah. So that, that medicine and that drug that people thought would be absolutely useless today generates a billion and a half dollars a year in revenue. Oh, wow. <laughs> and how much did you capitalize the business originally yourself? So, um, myself, it was capitalized originally at the level of $20 million. Wow. And that $20, $20 million. million has now grown to a market cap of $5 billion. Wow. And saved 40,000 lives, 40,000 people alive today. That's incredible. Incredible. So one of, the, uh, one of the rare diseases that I've become, I think, a little bit obsessed with and very, very passionate on. Everybody is, loves when you become obsessed with okay. it, right? Because <laughs> it means life's going to change. Is um, people who uh, need an organ transplant, yes. a kidney transplant, a liver transplant, a lung transplant, or a heart transplant. And um, for people with my daughter's disease and some of the other ones that we treat, if there's no medicine that can help them, their only solution is a transplant. And I've met some of my daughter's young friends who, before our medicine got approved, their disease advanced very rapidly. There's one delightful young lady, Kristen Gilday. She could play Mozart beautifully on a, on a piano. She got a lung transplant. Her body rejected it. She lived her last year of life in a hospital and died. And I vowed to myself that I was going to stop that sort of thing from happening. So um, I have been on a mission for the past few years to say, why can't we manufacture replacement organs the way we manufacture replacement parts for cars and machines and planes? And so our company has become a leader in this area of organ manufacturing. I always start practically. So I said, why don't we start with the organs that people nicely donate but are thrown away because the transplant doctors think that they're you know, been out of the body too long, been without blood too long, something yeah, wrong with them. Did I read the number? It was like 80% of lungs 80, thrown away? 80% are just thrown away. Imagine lungs. Somebody is nice enough to have donated that. Unfortunately, they got in a motorcycle accident or something and they died. And the doctors, and I don't really fault the doctors because they've got at the other end a person who's on their literally last leg. And if the lung is damaged or beat up a little bit, they say, well, I don't want to put this in somebody who's on their last leg in the intensive care ward. So uh, my, myself, my team, we invented a technology that creates an artificial body. It's under a dome. And in this artificial body under a dome, we can take a dead lung, and not all the time, but about 60% of the time, we can restore that dead lung to being just as good as a brand new living lung. We've now gone ahead and transplanted those into 1,600 people have walked out of the hospital with brand new lungs that were otherwise being thrown away. I, I just, I just, you know, I think all of us were so lucky to be alive in this time of day when um, somebody can have this dream, like I say, you know, truth and technology will like pounce into the ground, bullshit bureaucracy, and it was a lot of uh, bullshit bureaucracy that led those lungs to be thrown away too. Now we're saving them. We're moving that technology out to hearts, kidneys. Our next frontier is um, thanks to the breakthroughs that have been done by Craig Venter and people like yes. that in the human genome. 
I said, why can't we learn the pig genome as good as the human genome? Because it turns out that the pig's organs are the same size and shape as human organs. Some of you may have known that people needed a valve replacement for their heart, and they got it from a pig. Now, what they got was not the actual pig's valve, because what happens is all the tissues in the cells are stripped off that valve, but the shape of the valve is the same shape as the human valve, so it works as a replacement for it. So I said, why can't we go ahead and decode the pig genome, learn the pig genome as well as we know the human genome, and then modify those parts of the pig genome that give rise to rejection when the organ is put into the United States. Americans eat 100 million pigs a year. I'm one pig for every three people in America every year. I said, why, if we could just go ahead and take like a million of those pigs a year, we could cure every single person in America with heart disease, lung Without disease, having to wait disease, for an organ that may never we come. Have, exactly. Yeah. Everybody would have an organ on demand. So that's my goal. That's United Therapeutics' goal. And I am confident that we will accomplish it this decade. You're extraordinary. I mean, I have such a deep respect and love for you. I Thank think you, you know it. There's nobody like you on the planet. But it doesn't end there. You, she also cares about pigs. So tell them what your next level is that you're now working on and the XPRIZE you're working on. So it's, it's really not so much about the caring about the pigs is that um, everything in biology is complicated. And it's, it's the, we're machines. And we're beautiful machines. And it's why I said at the beginning that, you know, my ultimate vision is for people to spread into, you know, the moon, Mars, other space habitats. It's, it's amazing what evolution has ended up giving us. But when you go ahead and you put something like a pig organ into uh, a human being, we can chisel off enough genes so it won't be rejected out of hand. But no matter how many genes that we chisel off, it's still going to be rejected in the same way that another human-donated organ will right, be rejected. So you'll have to use immunosuppressants. Now, that's okay. I mean, it's better to be alive and taking immunosuppressants than not being alive at all. But it would be much better if you could get a replacement organ and not have to take immunosuppressants at all. So I saw a clear technology pathway to do this, which starts with using the technology of what's called inducible pluripotent stem cells. We live in such an awesome time, you guys. It's amazing. That just within the past 20 years, we have discovered that you could take a cell from your body and you can turn it back in time to becoming a stem cell, and then you can roll it back forward specifically to be a cardiac cell or an alveolar cell for the lung, different types of cells for different types of bodies. So the idea is that we could 3D print the scaffold or the shape of an organ and then stream over this scaffold or this shape the inducible pluripotent stem cells, the, the cells of the person who's going to end up receiving the organ. Now, some people need an organ like immediately. They're in a car accident. They're part of our armed forces fighting someplace. Yes. And for those people, the xeno organs, the organs from the pigs, they'll be great because they'll always be rolling off the assembly line. They'll always be available. Most people who have end-stage organ disease, it's coming. They see it coming. They've got a year, two years, three years to go. For, so for those individuals, my um, commitment 
is during the 2020s, we'll be able to say to them, look, the bad news, you got end-stage renal disease, end-stage liver disease, whatever it is, that's the bad news. The good news is that we have time to, first of all, take a CAT scan to get the exact shape of your particular organ. We'll take a biopsy skin sample. We will expand, we will turn your skin cells back into stem cells, and then we will re-differentiate them back into the particular type of organ that that individual needs. We'll expand them. We'll cellularize the scaffold that we printed with your cells. And within about six months' time, we will have for you an organ out of the bioreactor that matches your DNA. It can replace your bad organ, and you will not have to take any immunosuppressants or any other drugs for the rest of your life. I know Dr. Peter Atia at Wake Forest has been doing that with ears for yes. some warriors, and he also has bladders. Bladders. How, will the, how is this different than what he's doing? Because he's not being able to progress to that point yet. What do you, what's the angle you're looking at that's different out of curiosity? So with the uh, ears and the bladders, you have more of a monolayer type of situation. Okay. And with the organ, you've got a three-dimensional dynamic machine. So you need to have first a scaffold that operates in a bioreactor. And we've been able to practice at our, um, at our R&D headquarters in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. We are very fortunate to get the best and the brightest of uh, those schools, uh, Wake Forest, as you mentioned, and, and uh, many others. So what we do there uh, day in, day out, Tony, is we decellularize some of those pig organs that we okay. have. And then we recellularize it with human cells. We have uh, learned how to do it so well that we now produce 500 of those recellularized organs every year, right there. And what type of organs are you doing now? We're doing lungs there. So you're doing the lungs. You're actually growing the lungs. We we are growing the lungs, and we are doing them in three dimensions, uh, way beyond where uh, Tony Atala has has got. But he's doing doing great work, Oh, he's doing fantastic work, but he hasn't been able to do it with organs for the complexity. but, but But we do... We put those organs uh, into baboons, which the FDA requires you to use as an animal model before you go ahead and put them into people. Uh, we now have our hearts lasting years, actually three years in a baboon. Wow. Kidneys over a year in a baboon. So where are you in phase two or phase one trials of the FDA? So, well, the baboon, it counts as preclinical. Oh, preclinical. That's right. It's not To so the baboon, not, not it's not phase human. three. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but, How long after you but go? But to us, it's, pre, it's preclinical. So in the 2020s, we will be in the clinic uh, with people walking out of the hospitals with those new organs. Wow. That's not a hand, but that, that's incredible. And now, <laughs> as if there's not enough, look at this woman's consciousness, right? Her consciousness then is, I, we were talking in the Vatican, she's saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm really troubled because we need to get these organs to people. And, you know, to do that, you're flying helicopters around or jets around, and it's polluting the environment. I'm thinking I'm a good person because I'm planting 5 million trees every year to cover my carbon footprint. She doesn't do that. She wants to invent a new way to deliver these things. Will you tell them what you're doing with helicopters and also what you're doing with air taxis in China, if you would? Yeah, so um, it's, you know, a major use of helicopters and planes is transplanting, is is transporting the organ transplants. For example, uh, last week we had four lung transplants that required eight Learjets, you know, to move them all around within a 24-hour period. So this business uses a lot of flying of of things around. Um, I am a ridiculous, uh, I probably am a number one fan of Tesla. 
Um, I have like 10 Teslas and, you know, <laughs> I, awesome. every single one from Roadsters all the way up through Xs. And um, so, you know, as I, I'm a geek and I'm an engineer, so I'm playing with my car and I'm, and I'm a helicopter pilot. Yes. And I, I'm saying to myself, you know, I see the kilowatt power output of my Bell 429 helicopter. I see the uh, power output of my Tesla Roadster Model S. This power should be able to fly yeah. this machine. Again, a, a lot of people said uh, no to me. In fact, uh, Bell people said it, it couldn't be done. I went to other helicopter companies. They said it couldn't be done. So that's the worst thing to say to Martin Ruffley. <laughs> <laughs> so I put together a Tiger team. And almost everything we do in United Therapeutics is, is Tiger teams. My absolute favorite quote is from Margaret Mead who says it only takes a small group of committed individuals to change the world. Indeed, nothing else ever does. And um, that's what I see all of this, all of the tribes and all of the groups. These are small groups of committed individuals. Entrepreneurs are my tribe. And um, so uh, we put together this team. And uh, Tony, in less than 12 months, with less than $2 million of uh, funding, we created the world's first electric helicopter. Jeez. Give it up, ladies and gentlemen, for God's sake. I, I don't want to brag. No, please, I, please but, brag. But I'm channeling my inner Nelson Mandela here. Okay, good. Okay. Last month, I got the Guinness Book of World's Records for the world's longest flight in an electric helicopter. We are now building 1,000 electric helicopters, and you will see these manufactured organs from United Therapeutics being delivered to hospitals by electric helicopters that will be able to, um, subject to FAA approval, will be able to be flown autonomously. Until we get the FAA approval, they'll have a pilot flying them. Wow. But um, I, know, I know full well that uh, these helicopters can fly autonomously and, and, and land autonomously. Yes. So we'll get the FAA's approval for that. And you're just going to see like a highway in the sky of um, wings of life, you know, helicopters, yes. flying manufactured organs, saving people's lives, coming back to the nest in North Carolina, picking up more manufactured organs and flying on the hospitals. This is no sci-fi dream. Nope. This is no, you know, wishy-washy. I mean, it's not who I am. I'm like, you know, if you can't, that make, it, that. If you can't <laughs> make it or build it, I'm not that interested in it. And um, so these are things that are people, real solid people, are making and building right now. Well, you also are the largest, aren't you the largest shareholder in Ehang in China? That, That's that, correct. Tell e people about that because they know it already exists. That part exists, right? Yeah, so Ehang, uh, uh, Wang Xi is a good friend of mine. He's the CEO of Ehang. Amazing story. This guy, he demonstrated his Ehang at the Consumer Electronics Show. I showed it. I, contact, I saw it. I contacted him. I said, let's meet at uh, LAX. So we met over at the FBO at LAX. And he told me a story how he was the guy responsible for building the air traffic control system for the Beijing elect, uh, Olympics. He's actually just a, a supercomputer geek. And when the Beijing Olympics occurred, they needed to upgrade their air traffic control system. He did all that. He learned how to fly a helicopter. His best friend became his instructor. And unfortunately, the instructor uh, crashed his helicopter and, and died. And uh, Wang Xi vowed that he was going to make a helicopter that would not crash, that would have like multiple layers of fail-safe yes. uh, guidance so it would like land itself, it would uh, sense and avoid obstacles around. 
And he was, wanted to make them all electric because he too saw no matter how much good we do in saving people's lives and bringing health to people, if the whole planet is sick yeah. uh, because of uh, overheating and overpolluting the whole planet, then everybody's going to go down. So I found myself to have a, a true kindred brother in uh, Wanshi and became the largest shareholder in Ehang. And, um, and how far can they go and how many can people can they, how much weight can they hold these days? I know it's small at first. Has it gotten bigger? Yeah, it, it has gotten bigger. So the original one was a 180, uh, Ehang 186, and uh, that could go about 10 miles and hold two people. Now they have a 216, Ehang 216, that can go 50 miles and hold two people plus 100 pounds of additional cargo. Wow. And the uh, project that he and I are working on together is the Ehang, what we call the 416, that will hold two organ tenders and three organs and will fly autonomously for up to 150 miles. <laughs> so, man, ladies and gentlemen. Your common denominator seems to be that you make a decision to solve a big-ass problem. You, you had a phrase you used, I remember, uh, when we were together in, um, in the Vatican, and I think you said something like, the world's biggest problems are the biggest opportunities. Tell us how you look at problems, and tell us the process, because it sounds like you just are total self-education. You go full tilt. It doesn't matter what anybody tells you. You know the outcome. You know there's an answer. And you keep digging till you find it. Tell us a little bit more about the process of you, because you've done it over and over again here. So I, I think the, the main common denominator, Tony, is really one of, of practicality. Mm -hmm. um, I try to make an assessment as to whether or not a um, problem is practically solvable. Mm -hmm. So first of all, that, I think that starts with physics, and uh, I'm a huge supporter of STEM education. The number one charity that I support is Dean Kamen's First Robotics. Mm -hmm. Any First Robotics folks here? Okay, thank you. So um, I love First Robotics because um, a third of the participants are girls and women, and that's uh -oh. something that you don't see in a lot of other STEM activities. And um, it teaches everybody science, technology, and every year you have to actually build a robot and you have yes. to actually do something with it. So I start off with science and technology. Is this um, problem within the laws of physics? Then I take a look over at engineering. Engineering is the application of uh, math and physics to a material science that exists today. And for example, when I was growing up, I really uh, had a huge dream and a huge desire to build large habitats in space. Hmm. Physics, math, it could be done. I learned that from this guy, uh, Gerard K. O'Neill, uh, physics professor at, phys at Princeton. Unfortunately, uh, the engineering was not there. We didn't have the engineering capability. So uh, Dr. O'Neill invented a GPS type of system, and I became the CEO of his company, and that got me into all of this satellite communication stuff. So satellites were practical. And with regard to the organ manufacturing, I would love to be able to push a magic uh, longevity button and slow down the rate of our cellular uh, death as we were talking, you know, to yes. stop. I don't know how to do that now. I don't think it violates any laws of physics. I've read that great people like, uh, like uh, uh, Feynman and these famous engineers, uh, um, um, physicists, say there's no physical reason 
why people can't live indefinitely, but engineering-wise, we don't know how to do that right now. Yes. Replacing organs? Yeah, we know how to do that. We're transplanting people right and left. So it's like in an old car, you make it new by replacing the engine, replacing the tires. We got B-52s being flown by the grandchildren of the engineers that, you know, worked on on building the original B-52 just by replacing the parts. So that's something that can be done. So I ask myself, is it practical from an engineering standpoint? Then the third thing I do is I just chop it up into little pieces of that are each step is less than a year to get there. Because I think as humans, we've kind of, from evolution, we've evolved ourselves that we can work on things that have um, more than a day-to-day concern. We can build a house. Um, we can uh, take a trip to a uh, um, uh, some number of weeks or months away to find a better place to live or better food. But if you say to a human, we're going to work on something for 20 years, it's, it's hard for us to do that. We're not really wired that way. So I take these practical projects and I, I divide them into one-year sub-projects. And at the end of each year, there has to be something awesome. Like we have to save a life. We have to fly a helicopter. Oh, I love that. We have to get a Guinness Book of World Record. That's cool. And... Um, and then I, I carefully stack these one-year projects, and at the end of 10 years of these projects, we have something that seems miraculous, like satellite radio, like a medicine to save 40,000 people's lives, like a manufactured organ. Yes, yeah, so you chunk it down. You make it so it's bite-sized. So on, on the manufacturing of organs, what's your one-year out? What's one of the major ones right now for the next year? So um, I'm, we have five different... Another... Another secret sauce, I would say, is to be very careful when you're developing technology not to put all of your eggs in one basket. Yes. And the more challenging the technology, the more careful you have to be about hedging your bets. So I've got several different teams working under a model of what we call coopetition. Got several Mm. different teams, each competing with each other to manufacture organs, also cooperating on the same goal and going about it uh, different uh, pathways. So from one year from now, we plan to ask FDA approval to transplant the first manufactured kidney into a person. Wow. So that would be basically the end of this year. Wow. And then the FDA will mull that over. Yes. Hopefully the government will be in business. Yes. If they're not, we'll do it anyway. Just joking. That's awesome. But hopefully they'll be in business. And 2020 is a reasonable time frame to say that the first clinical manufactured organ would occur. That's exciting. Wow. Let's have a hand again. That's incredible. It's really incredible. There's also, though, a part of you that just, I hear how you've done this, but I heard a step first that, correct me if I'm wrong, we've talked here about the tyranny of how, that so many people try to figure out how, and they don't have the certainty yet they're going to do it. With your daughter, for sure, you just freaking decided, and then you went and found out, you assumed it sounds like, maybe I'm wrong, that the physics can certainly support healing a body, right? You may not have the engineering yet. How much of that is just deciding this is so important, having strong enough reasons that then you find the answers to those questions? You know, the beautiful thing about the human mind is it's like a quantum computer. It can take in so much information and then just collapse it to a solution yes. right away. And you look at a situation and you be open-minded and you say, well, if something was wrong just between the heart and the lungs, 
that's something that must be fixable. Yes. So I knew there be. was a solution. If, um, if the energy output of my Bell 429 is 1,000 kilowatt hours and the energy output of my Tesla Roadster is 1,000 kilowatt hours, I should be able to make the helicopter fly yeah. electrically. Yeah. And if, um, if a billion bodies can manufacture organs day in, day out, since time immemorial, yes. not to mention all the animals in the animal yes. kingdom, then why the f can't we do it too? I've always said, you know, if you want new answers, you ask new questions, and you ask those questions, but you ask them with certainty that they're gonna need to be answered. I'd like to talk to you about your personal life, if it's okay, because one of the things I wanted to do here is represent men and women, and you've had an experience where you were born a man, and you had a different experience of what's inside, and you made that translation, and you're such a role model. I wonder if you would share with us, when did you notice there was something different, and how have you navigated that, and what's your life like today? There's a, you know, the human mind, like I said, it's like a quantum computer, and yes. it's, a, the thing about quantum stuff, it's kind of spooky like uh, realities pop in and out of existence. You don't really know what's going on. So I had constantly in my mind that even though society had labeled me and categorized me as a boy and then a man, I felt that, um, in fact, I was just as much, um, if not more, a girl and a woman. Yes. But I was, uh, as any social being, I'm super sensitive to not wanting to be laughed at not wanting to be bullied, uh, not wanting to lose all my friends. So I just kept all of that bottled up. What stage of life did you realize this? This was from teenage years onward. Teenage years on, okay. Wonderful. Yep. So I just kept all of that, you know, just bottled up uh, in me. And um, when I'm in a, in a meeting or in a group, in a club, going out to a bar, to a restaurant, to a party, and... You know, there's a bunch of guys hanging out, like, around the keg and whatnot. And then there's, you know, some women over here. I just found myself saying, why am I here around the keg when, you know, I really, you know, yeah. want to be hanging out with the women? But I was embarrassed and ashamed to do that because I knew that I would be humiliated yes. if, if I did that. So I just kept it all bottled up in me and went all the way through the launch of uh, Sirius um, completely presenting as a man. The only uh, person who really knew any different um, was my best friend, my soulmate, uh, wife, Spice, whatever you want to call it, Bina. Yes. And uh, shortly after we got married, because I was, I was um, scared, I loved her so much, I love her so much, yes. that I was scared. We've been married like 35 years, so and we're best of friends, and Every day, I love her more than the day before. It's beautiful. So one night, we're in bed, and I said, look, if you never want to hear this again, I'll never say it again. But I have to tell you that inside myself, um, I feel like I'm a woman. And when I'm making love to you, I feel like I am a woman making love to a woman. And... Um, She's just like the most awesome person I've ever met. Whoa. And she's like, okay, you know, I, I can understand that. I didn't really fall in love with a male or a female or, you know, a big person or a small person. I fell in love with your soul, Martin. Yeah. And you've got a beautiful soul. And that's all that's that matters. Beautiful. You redefine everything, don't you? So um, 
with her support, and um, we have four children, and I asked each one of them, I said, look, if, if you guys don't want me to do this transition to female, I won't. Um, we must have raised them somewhat right because every one of the four of them said, no, it's fine with us, oh. from uh, Genesis up to her oldest brother, Eli. So I did transition in the middle of the satellite communications industry. It was, there were, there were some jaws that dropped and whatnot, but interestingly, because, you know, we're all entrepreneurs here, the, the response of Wall Street was, was surprisingly, I guess, predictable. Um, I remember like this uh, one guy at um, um, a large fund. Uh, it was um, this Colorado-based fund. The name will come to me in a second. He said to me, Martin, it's that fund with the face, Janus Fund. Janus Fund out of, uh, yes. out of Colorado. Sure. He said, Martin, I don't really care if you show up and work in a gorilla suit as long as you keep <laughs> making money for me. <laughs> It's a great thing about Wall Street. It's a meritocracy, right? So I still don't have any gorilla suits. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been, uh, I, I, it's been no problem being a public company CEO, openly transgendered. And I, again, I, I feel there's so much that I give gratitude for, the uh, love of my partner, the love of my family, the, um, but probably really close to the top of the list, Tony, is just being able to be alive in 2019 yeah. and this point in time yeah. when people can be themselves yes. in a meritocratic sense, not everywhere, not all the time, not everybody, but certainly this is the best time in the history of the earth to be alive. I agree with that. Tell me a little bit about digital transcendence and how you look at that. It's a term that most people in this room probably are not even familiar with. Maybe you can define it for them and give a little sense of that. And then also I know the language of, you know, kind of cyber consciousness and where, how you look at the world and how you look at what is happening to consciousness and how it will spread around the universe. Sure. Well, a lot of people have uh, become interested in the possibility of digitally mapping our minds outside of our body. A lot of this uh, started with uh, Alan Turing in the uh, 1940s and the 1950s. It's, it's actually a kind of an interesting segue from what you brought up about transgender. As many of you may know, Alan Turing is, is pretty much, I would say, the father of cyber consciousness. Yes. Because he laid out how a computer could be conscious. He, um, and the he Turing test, some of you have heard about, right, as to how to know whether this digital intelligence could be perceived as human. And he was also the guy that uh, cracked the German uh, encryption code, code in World, World War II and played a significant role in allowing the Allies to win World War II. What's a little bit less known is that he was a gay man and he was uh, horribly persecuted by that in the UK and finally uh, driven to suicide after being arrested, outed, humiliated, and uh, forced onto medical therapy that he didn't want. And we have to think like, what would happen if somebody like Alan Turing had been given the freedom that somebody like myself have, has had? Yeah. I, I would say cyber consciousness would already be happening because yeah. he was onto it. But now it's almost like a, you know, Google's all in it with DeepMind and Elon Musk with uh, mind uploading. So it's, it's no secret that our brains are full of neural connections and each of these neural connections are settings that give rise to all of our memory. 
The software inside our mind is, is astonishing because it allows us to recognize each other and to form beautiful sentences and create amazing projects like um, all of the um, companies and the projects that you guys are doing within this group. So the software is astonishing. And the question is, one, will we ever be smart enough to take that software that's within our mind and create a version of it outside of our mind? And you can believe that's possible or, or not. I, I personally believe it's possible. So the body goes away and you put a different substrate to hold your consciousness. Yep. So I, I think that that's an engineering problem. There's another point of view that says that the brain is so complicated that we could never replicate it outside of our body. Uh, my response to that is that a, a modern jet, like a um, 777 Dreamliner, has something like uh, 3 million parts. A bird has something like 30 billion parts. But the jetliner flies really, really well. It doesn't do everything the bird does, but we don't need our jetliners to be eating worms and, and you know. <laughs> so, uh, so I think like a cyber consciousness might be a little bit different. But it's just like if you grow up in America, you're going to be a little bit different than if you grew up as a pygmy in the, in the, in the middle of Africa. I mean, your environment is, is going to change you. So I think that's doable. Finally, I believe that we, our bodies are so beautiful and, and magical that even after we are able to upload our minds into a computing substrate and have a Tony Robbins working you know, online, not just in his body, that we will still want our bodies too, because I've, I, I can't even, I don't even have the imagination to imagine what it would be, what could be better than a human body. So I think what will end up happening is that we will use this regenerative medicine technology that you've heard me talking about. If I'm making hearts and kidneys and lungs and livers, which we are making and many other people in our industry are making too, truly we'll be making skin and hair and pulling the whole thing together. So I definitely don't believe that cyber consciousness means bodies are going away. Bodies are here forever. But what it does mean is that we'll be able to accomplish much more than we can accomplish when all of our mind is instantiated just in our body. We'll be able to accomplish everything that's instantiated in our body, as well as having our mind working outside of our body, doing lots of other things as well. The bottom line is that life is going to get much more better, more interesting, more fascinating, and I believe it's going to bring us ultimately to the realm of, of uh, what I call techno-immortality, that we will be able to live as our personality, as our consciousness, as long as we want, because even when one given body runs out, you won't run out. You'll still be living outside of your body, and you will be able to contract for a replacement body to be built and your mind downloaded back into it. I'm doing a minor version of this right now because I'm building an AI as we speak and I have every intervention I've done since I was 20 years old recorded. So, you know, massive machine learning. And I also am disciplined. So after every interaction, 
since I was 23, I dictate what I did, what worked, what didn't, why. So we have all the principles. We already have the audio and the video at, at the highest level. But that machine learning where it can look at you and read you even better than I can and remember every single thing. So I'm doing that so that I can help millions of individual people in millions of places simultaneously. So I'm also building one for business, and I'm also building one for my grandkids and my kids so that I can continue. But the idea that I could not just have created that consciousness and have it grow and maybe teach me while I'm still alive, it could continue, but that I could somehow be a part of that consciousness long-term is just mind-boggling. And, and seeing someone like you who has taken everything that said couldn't be done and say it could be done, I wouldn't bet against you in a million years, and I'm, I'm on your team. It's a pretty extraordinary possibility that's there. Give her a hand for it. It's extraordinary. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Tony Robbins Podcast, a collection of one-on-one interviews with thought leaders, fascinating stories, and exclusive strategies from Tony Robbins himself. If we've added value for you today, let us know. Leave us feedback on iTunes or give us a rating. And to get new episodes the very moment they're released, subscribe now. You'll be among the hundreds of thousands who are following the Tony Robbins podcast. The Tony Robbins podcast is a collection of interviews and stories and is produced by the Tony Robbins team. Copyright Robbins Research International. 